You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage today is John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Who here knows what a foil is? Anyone? Not tinfoil, aluminum foil, but when you read books, a foil. Anyone know what a foil is? A foil is a device that an author will use to create a stark contrast between two characters. So some great literary examples throughout history are Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy. Anyone? No? The former, the former is poor, disadvantaged, good-hearted, latter, privileged, cruel. Think about Les Mis. Don't read it. It's really long. I haven't read it. Not going to read it. I'll watch the movie. But Jean Valjean and Javert, one could forgive, one could not stand that he was forgiven. Even in Pride and Prejudice, you have Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, the former working class, witty, chip on her shoulder, Mr. Darcy privileged, but surprisingly kind. And then you have Jesus and Peter. Two men in stark contrast to one another that John, the author of this work of literature, is presenting before us to make some observations about. And what a foil does is it highlights unstated points. So it's almost emphatic what the point is, but it's not, it's not explicit. But as we read through the story and observe Peter and Jesus and how their responses to the pressure applied to them uh, are revealed, we see a lot about their character and who they are. So here's the order of the sermon today. We're going to examine Peter. John's going to present Peter first. And then John's going to interrupt that story with Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus and how he conducts himself while he's on trial and then jump to Peter again. And then we're going to close with some um, introspection some thoughts, some application. So let's just read the story together and look at Peter and Jesus and the contrast between these two men. Start with me in verse 15, looking at Peter, it says this, John says this, Simon Peter, he followed Jesus 
and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So the other disciple here that's not named is John. More than likely, John's family, they knew the high priest because he probably came from some measure of wealth. John's a fisherman. Fishermen aren't wealthy in this time, but we know from John's recording of the story that John's dad had many hired men in his fisherman business. So more than likely, John's family's kind of well-connected, knows some people in power. So it just so happens that they know the high priest and his family. And also keep in mind that in the rural ancient times, not in our, our modern individualized society now, everything is really connected. Everything is highly communal. So John knows this family, and he has this privileged access to their house. And we keep on reading the story, and we'll see what happens next in verse 16. But Peter, he stood outside the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So John uses his connections to get Peter into the courtyard. And like I just said before, and we'll explore this more later, this isn't the courtyard of the temple, and that's a really, really important note to make. This is not the temple. This is the high priest's house, the courtyard to his house. And we know that because in the temple courtyard, the person who keeps watch at the door and lets people in is an officer or a priest. Here, it's a servant girl. So this is definitely the high priest's house. That's where this trial and interrogation is taking place. Keep reading. Look what happens to Peter in verse 17. The servant girl at the door, said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So Peter lies. He lies in order to save his own skin. Jesus is on trial. Peter does not want to end up in the same position. He does not want to be on trial, and so he lies to get himself out of a predicament. But then the pressure increases in verse 18. Look at it. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So you have to imagine, you have to just imagine the scene. Peter approaches this charcoal fire because it's freezing cold out in Jerusalem this night. This is Passover night. And as the light from the fire begins to illuminate his face, the, the, the officers glance at him. They see his face. They start to recognize him. They start to stare at him. His heart starts beating fast, and he starts to cover up his face. Like This is a high-pressure situation because you have to remember, just before this, Peter cut a man's ear off. Remember that? Peter fled the scene and resisted arrest. Peter, according to the law, should be arrested, should be on trial for insurrection, for assault. So Peter knows that he's guilty and that he should stand trial and so he's beginning to feel the pressure of the moment. The walls are closing in on him. So the stage is set now for what's to come. But now John interrupts Peter's story with Jesus' trial, with Jesus' interrogation. And this is now where the foil begins. Let me just tell you what's about to happen here. John has constructed a dramatic contrast where Jesus, who is innocent, stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter, who is guilty, cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Peter, excuse me, Jesus, innocent, stands up to his questioners, denies nothing. Peter, guilty, cowers before his questioners, denies everything. So look at Jesus and how he conducts himself here in verse 19. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, just some background here. The high priest in this verse, in verse 19, his name is Annas. Uh, he's actually not the high priest at this time. His son Caiaphas is. You'll see that down in verse 24. Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas, who is the high priest at this current moment. But Annas's family uh, has control of the priesthood. They've monopolized the priesthood, sort of like a mobster, a godfather in Brooklyn in the 80s who consolidates all power and keeps it through his line of succession. That's what Annas has done. He's consolidated all of the power at this time through succession passing on his title to the next. It's almost like the Jews would have understood it like a pastor at a church who's been there for 40 years, retires, stays at the church. His son takes over as the lead pastor, but everyone knows, therefore, you have two lead pastors now, right? That's the kind of situation here. Uh, Annas is seen as the high priest, even though Caiaphas is the high priest at this time. So they bring Jesus to the Godfather first, Annas. And Annas begins to rail him and question him about his teaching and about his disciples. Why is that? Why is he railing him about those two things specifically? First, because he wants to find out if Jesus is teaching anything false. Secondly, he wants to find out if, teach, if Jesus is leading an insurrection, if his disciples are in on it, and if they need to be concerned about any of these men who are following Jesus, who are in his inner circle. Because both of those things, false teaching and insurrection, are condemnable. And so they want to put Jesus on the spot and catch him in his words. And the story continues, verses 20 and 21. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, public places, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me, heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, if you want to know what I've been teaching, if you want to know my claims, just ask the people who've been witnessing all along. Jesus defends himself by highlighting how public his message has been. And it's really interesting because in the Jewish law, and this is really important, listen to this, in the Jewish law, Jewish custom of interrogation and trial, the defendant, who is Jesus, the defendant is always presumed innocent. And he's never asked questions first. There's always at least two to three witnesses who are first to ask questions in any sort of trial. That's just how it goes. So Jesus, he knows his rights. And he's just simply calling this group of men who is railing him to the law, to the standard of the law at the time, to what their practice is. He's simply asking for a fair trial. And so everything that's going on is really sketchy. You see that? Uh, and just to add, just to remember these proceedings are supposed to be occurring in the temple. That's where these, are, these things are supposed to happen, but it's occurring somewhere else in the night, in the, in, inside someone's house, in private, without witnesses. So the irony, you begin to see, right, it's very, very stark here. Jesus is leveled by questions, but in every way, this interrogation is questionable. And then things escalate in verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now, it, in this time, what's customary is this would be okay if Jesus had done something unlawful. If Jesus had said something that was inappropriate or unacceptable according to the standards of the time, but here Jesus has simply done what? 
He's referenced their customs. He's referenced their law. He's called his accusers to that standard, to the right standard. So you see irony again here. Jesus conducts himself according to the law. His accusers dismiss the law altogether and conduct themselves unlawfully. And so that's why Jesus responds in verse 23 and says this, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about me. Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? See, again, it would be appropriate to be punished if Jesus had broke the law, if he uh, acted in a way that was out of step with the standards that are appropriate at the time, but he hasn't. And so them striking him just punctuates their own corruption. So they, his accusers, have expedited this trial. They've done it in the secret at night, in the home of a high priest where there's no witnesses. Nothing about their conduct is honest. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, summarizes it like this. In short, Jesus is asking for a fair trial while his opponents are already unmasked as those who, unable to win their case by fair means, are perfectly happy to resort to foul. You have to stand back and look at Jesus here and examine his words, examine how he's conducting himself. And you know what stands out about Jesus here that we should take notice of? How admirable he is. Now, what's so admirable about Jesus in this time, in this scene? His integrity. His integrity is really impressive. Listen, he isn't trying to hide anything. Recall, Jesus is saying, hey, call the witnesses. There's plenty of people who have heard what I've said and have seen me in public. Call them to the stand. He's only holding his accusers to a fair trial, and he's saying, I have no secrets. I am who I am in public, not just in private. He let his character do the talking. His character is all the defense that he needed. Who he is in public is who he truly is. Who you see with Jesus is who you get. He's got nothing to hide. Luke 8, 17, Jesus says this, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Who you are will always emerge. Your true self, your hidden self, will always be exposed over time. And Jesus has no issue embracing the light. Jesus has no issue inviting accountability, inviting these these people to probe him with any witnesses, call them to the stand. He has no issue holding himself accountable to the law because he has nothing to hide. He isn't asking for anyone to go easy on him. He's not asking for for special treatment. He's not asking for partiality. That's the kind of thing that perpetuates injustice. And Jesus advocates for what is fair and what is just, even if it makes things difficult for him. And although he has to endure this unjust trial, this sketchy trial, you also need to notice this about his integrity. He doesn't slander, and he doesn't lose his composure. He does not return evil for evil. Compare Jesus with Paul. In Acts chapter 23, Paul, in a very similar situation, is getting grilled by interrogators, and here's how it goes. Acts 23, Paul is getting questioned, and here's what happens. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you, sitting to, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, 
Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's from Exodus chapter 22. Paul understands in this moment that what he has just done, even though he's being mistreated, broke the law, broke the standards at this time. He did something inappropriate. He's, he, uh, it was a misstep in conduct. Paul wasn't perfect. Paul didn't get it right. He let his anger get the best of him in this moment. He lost his composure, but not Jesus. Not Jesus in this moment. He maintains his integrity. And so in every way, Jesus' integrity shows us what? His righteousness and his blamelessness and his perfect obedience. He entrusts himself to the Father. He doesn't need to justify himself. He doesn't need to vindicate himself. He knows that his perfect obedience and his blamelessness is enough to defend himself, and that's what he relies on, his integrity. So Jesus, Jesus is impressive. We should admire him because of his integrity, but also we should admire Jesus because he's not a doormat either. Do you notice that? I mean, he calls these men to the carpet. He calls them to what is true, doesn't he? Turning the other cheek without bearing witness to the truth is cowardice. And so when you see Jesus, you see a man who, though meek and mild, always resists lies, always resists injustice. Each of us here usually lean one way or another when it comes to conflict. We just love conflict. We're ready for it at any moment. We're ready to just like have that battle and hash it out with somebody. We love that or we just avoid conflict at all costs and just kind of like dig a hole and hide. Jesus had the unique ability to just live in the tension and do conflict soundly, perfectly, and wisely. So Jesus, he always called out sin. He always imposed, opposed injustice, yet with integrity and yet without ever sinning himself. And just one more thing to make our admiration of Jesus glow even more. We must remember that you just don't, you don't conjure up character in a given moment. As, in other words, who you are will be revealed when the pressure is applied. Who you are all along will come out when the heat gets turned up. Your hidden self will be revealed all in time. And so Jesus here, who is he really? Who, who is his hidden self, his true self, who you see out every day in public, in the temple, in the synagogues, walking around Palestine, walking around day to day with everyone else in community? Who you see is what you get. Nothing to hide, no secrets for Jesus. Jesus is totally, thoroughly righteous, blameless, courageous. That's who Jesus is. Now Peter. Peter's turn. Woohoo, Peter. Here we go. Are you ready for this? The foil, 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they, the officers, said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? This just happened, you know, really recently. This just happened. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. More on that in a minute. What happens with Peter in this story? Three separate times he lies to spare himself, to save his own skin, 
this should be surprising to us. If you have you know, grown up reading your Bible and know the stories of the Gospels, you know that, that Peter is very committed to Jesus. P- Peter is his most loyal ally, right? I mean, Peter, just recently before this, tried to lop a guy's ear off in defense of Jesus so Jesus wouldn't be arrested. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter at the Passover meal. Remember, that just happened. Like, although I'm about to read this in chapter 13, this is all on the same night. So this very evening, Peter has told Jesus this in chapter 13. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Bold words. That's a strong, that's strong. It's a strong commitment. Jesus replies in 38, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will, the rooster will, crow, will not crow till you have denied me three times. What's been going on here with Peter is Peter is willing to lay down his life for Jesus. Peter is willing to go to trial for Jesus. G- Peter is willing to, to pay it all for Jesus. But that was back when Jesus wasn't arrested, when Jesus didn't seem like everything that he had built was now irrelevant and nothing. That was back when Peter's hope of a kingdom on earth was very much still alive. And now that Peter's dream is crushed of this kingdom, the glory, and however that would benefit him and what that would do for him, now that that dream is crushed, there's now no reason to stand with Jesus. And so now Peter must just save himself. He just has to do whatever it takes at this moment to pull all the shreds and shrapnel of his life back together and salvage this thing. It's all gone. His dream is crushed. And what this shows us is that Peter was never really in it for Jesus' sake. He was so committed and so loyal and so steadfast, wasn't he? But now in this moment, he denies Jesus three times when it matters most. And what it shows, it was really all along about what, Jesus, what Peter could get out of Jesus, what he stood to benefit from in this relationship. So it's not surprising then. It's surprising, but it's not surprising, is it? Is it? That Peter now decides to save his own skin because all along, the hidden self, right? The hidden self, the true self, it always emerges. The really what's central to Peter's life is what's in it for him, what this will mean for him, how he can benefit from this relationship that he has with Jesus, the kingdom that he can build. Now, all of us would love to read this story and think that we're Jesus. Courageous, you know, uncompromising, integrity, righteous, always above board. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Answer, no one. Because when the pressure is put on any of us, the weakness will come out, the flaws will be exposed. See, no one person here can perfectly relate to Jesus. No one person here can perfectly relate to Jesus, but each and every single one of us here can perfectly relate to Peter. Because each of us have secret agendas hidden in our heart. Each of us have a hidden self that's revealed when the pressure is applied. You might, you might listen, you're here, and you might think you're a pretty good person. 
You're here and you might think you're decent. But you find out how decent you are when the pressure's applied and the heat's turned up. Let me ask you a few questions. Who here can say they welcome thorough vetting and thorough accountability in their life? Thorough probing. Just turn everything over and examine my life and myself completely. Who here, who here wants that? Who here can say, call witnesses to everything I've ever done and everything I've ever said? I got nothing to hide. Who here can say they've always kept their composure, never lashed out, never seized vindication, doesn't need the last word, has always opposed partiality and injustice? Only Jesus can say, I've got that all straight. Not any one of us, certainly not Peter. And more than that, who here can pray for your enemies without any hatred in your heart as you're tortured by them and made a public spectacle by them. Not any one of us. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. So none of us are Jesus. We don't read the Gospels and think we relate to Jesus. We read the Gospels and think, I'm the beggar, I'm the leper, I'm the blind man, and I'm the bad friend. Each of us are Peter. And this is really bad news. <laughs> Because Peter, if scrutinized according to the law, if Peter was caught and he was examined by the law of his time, you know what the verdict is? Guilty, standing on trial and being put to death as an insurrectionist. That's what Peter deserves. That's what's true. And we are Peter. So it's bad news. But it's also good news because there's hope for Peter. So there's hope for each of us. Because Peter, here's, here's what happens. He did not remain the Peter we're seeing now. Peter changed, and Peter became more like Jesus. And this is our last point here, after we've just talked about the foil of Peter and Jesus. The point now where we land is we need to move from Peter to Jesus. We need to be transformed by the gospel so that our hidden self, not just the self we present, but our hidden self, who you are to your very core, is actually somebody who aligns with the person of Jesus. And that's only possible if we believe the gospel and if we trust in the gospel. It's only possible if all that Peter is and all that you are and all that I am dies and all that Jesus is takes its place. We must die, and the version of ourselves that is conforming to Jesus must rise and live and take its place. So, let's talk moving from Peter to Jesus. We've talked about Jesus, Peter, we're Peter. Now we need to move. We need to be transformed from Peter to Jesus. So I want to present a few verses here. Some controlling ideas as we talk about transformation. Romans 6 verse 4 says this, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This means that when Jesus went into the grave, our sinful and selfish self did too. When the Holy Spirit raised Jesus to new bodily life, he raises us to new spiritual life. 
so that now the person who's walking around is becoming less and less like that sinful, selfish self and transforming into a righteous, generous self, someone who looks like Jesus, someone conformed to Jesus, that hidden true self becoming someone who actually looks like Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not the things that are on the earth, for you have died. You've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That former self, that self that looked a lot like Peter and conducted yourself a lot like Peter, if you're a Christian and you believe that Jesus died in your place and was resurrected so you can have that same resurrection power applied to you, that former self is gone and a new self is created. And so now the point is this, become what you are. Become what you are. You've been given Jesus' righteousness, his blamelessness, all these things that we've been recounting here and admiring about Jesus, that's been credited to you by God the Father because Jesus died for you in your place and transferred it all to you. So now become what you are. The old self is gone. The new self is created. Galatians 2.20, last controlling idea here as we talk about transformation. I have been crucified with Christ. I join him up there. I was nailed to the cross along with him, which means I am dead. I am gone. It is no longer I who live, but now Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the life Christians presently live is done so in constant mindfulness of the great love of Jesus because it is that love made available and enjoyed that helps me keep that dead, former, sinful, selfish self buried in the ground where he belongs and that righteous, generous, Christ-like self living and breathing. That's what the love of God keeps going. Death to self alive in Christ. So if I'm to summarize what all of this is saying, it's this. Union with Jesus brings about conformity to Jesus. If you're united to Jesus, joining him in his death and joining him in his resurrection, you will, over time, become like him. And Peter is just this living breathing example of this kind of transformation, of union with Jesus that brings about profound change. Remember, we are Peter, so this should give us hope. So look what, look what happens to Peter later on in John chapter 21. Read with me verses 15 through 19. Jesus finds all the disciples fishing. They've gone back to their former way of life. They've gone back to the life they knew before Jesus, their former selves. In resurrected Jesus, approaches them. It says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, these disciples? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Always Peter, right? So just self-assured and committed. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. 
he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter also did something else three times. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Sound familiar? And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. In this exchange with Peter, there's two significant developments in Peter's life. First, Peter's given a threefold commission, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Each is a reversal and a redemption of a betrayal he made. Three betrayals, three commissions. Redemption. Second, Peter is predicted to die a death that will glorify God. His arms will be stretched out. He'd be led against his own will to his death. And church history recounts and shows us that Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he did not count himself worthy to die in the same manner of his Lord. Peter's reinstated and redeemed, even though he totally flopped. How can that be? How can he be reinstated and redeemed? Here's the answer, friends. Because Jesus died for his sin. And because Jesus gave to Peter a righteousness that he could only ever dream of. A kind of righteousness that just obliterated all his failures and sins. So the Peter of old will be buried with Christ, and a new Peter will be raised to newness of life. The old Peter will be nailed to the cross, put into the ground, come out of that tomb, a new man, a man who is more like Jesus and less like Peter, so much so that his ministry is shaped by Jesus' ministry and his death is shaped by Jesus' death. Think about that, the, the poetic justice of this all. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life for the sheep, now Peter becomes a shepherd. And Jesus was crucified for Peter, so his betrayal is forgiven and forgotten, and now Peter will be crucified for Jesus. You cannot get a clearer testimony of the gospel's power to change us, to change us to become people who are less like Peter, less like ourselves, and more like Jesus. We're not Jesus, we are Peter, but that should give us a ton of hope. So I want to conclude, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just curious about these things, I just want to tell you that when the pressure is applied, what comes out? If we're to do an honest self-examination, we know that we are not as decent as we think we are. For all of the posturing and for all of the good things we've done, we know deep down in our hearts, that hidden self, the real self, we're a lot like Peter. We do nice things and good things because really at the end of the day, it's in our self-interest to do them. When the pressure is applied, we run and hide 
or we defend ourselves. We don't have that pristine character that just will do the talking for us, that will defend ourselves for us. Only Jesus has that kind of character and blamelessness, but he's offering that you today so that you, when you stand before your creator, when you stand before God, you don't have to shirk in fear. You don't have to run and hide away. You can stand before God, your Father, confident because you've been dressed in that very same righteousness. That only happens, though, when you come to Jesus and say, yeah, I've been self-deceived for a long time. I'm not actually that decent. The law, the standards, the things that Jesus was totally okay holding himself to, I can't hold a candle to. So I need forgiven. I need to be changed. And he will do it. And so for the rest of us here who are Christians, you're most of us here, you know, followers of Jesus, here's my charge to you. Become what you are. Who's the hidden self? Who's the, who's the true self underneath it all? Is it somebody who really deeply and profoundly is becoming conformed to Jesus? Are you living a life that looks a lot like that person who's been nailed to the cross and put in the grave? Or are you looking a lot like the person who's being changed to become more like Jesus? Not perfect. I mean, none of us here are going to reach that status to glory. But are you being changed? Are you becoming what you are? We're not Jesus. We're Peter. But by God's grace, that's okay. Because he's changing each one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We praise you for your forgiveness. Thank you, God, for forgiving us. We have failed. We have misstepped. We have been dishonest. We have been not as good as we think we are. And so we just cry out to you for your grace and mercy. And we thank you, Jesus, that you've given it to us. God, I pray that the, the truth that um, we can see in your Son would be so wildly attractive to us that we would chase that for the rest of our days by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would build our lives on the gospel and build our identity on the gospel. In your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.